You're listening to a podcast from 702. Literature Corner. And today we are in conversation with novelist Echo Duker about his latest novel, Yellowbone, which is an absolutely beautiful layered novel that deals with a range of themes that's not necessarily new to a novelist but I think he does so particularly beautifully and insightfully Uh, many different notions you and I have been speaking ethics the whole morning this novel deals with deceit it deals with questions of justice identity colorism which is very important and it does so in ways that also intersect with other aesthetic things that matter to us as readers the cityscape, the huge differences between places like England, Ghana, and South Africa. And um, even in South Africa, when we do write novels, we often place set them in the most familiar of our dorps or cities. It's not often, especially now that um, it has gone down the drain, uh, that you will find Mtata looming large in a novel. So a really interesting novel for all sorts of reasons that I can speak into for an hour, but we only have 20, 25 minutes with him. If you've already read this novel, if you've read his excellent previous novelists, if you want to say novels, if you want to say how's it, ask a question, tell me your impressions of Yellowbone, or just speak to the author, you can give us a call throughout on 11 Echo, good morning to you, and thank you so much for coming in. Sure, thank you so much for having me. It's only a pleasure. Congratulations. Thank you. I want us to introduce the public to the characters. There are many characters. They're all equally important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, in many ways, I suppose the central character in this story is Karabo. That's right. Tell the public about Karabo. Okay. She's an impressionable young lady um, so when the story starts, she's about four or five years old. She's born in Mtata, and her father's from Ghana. She happens, she happens to be very light-skinned. So what I wanted to do was just to explore the, the random privileges and the random hurts that seem to attach to women, especially who are light-skinned. So the story tracks her life from Mtata to London, and finally brings it to a climax when she returns. Well, when, so when she goes to her father's home for the first time, when she travels to Ghana. Hmm. And it deals with so many different themes, right? Yeah. Which is really, really interesting. And there's one very cheesy thing that writers often say, especially you fiction writers, more than us nonfiction, that the characters write themselves um, as if you are completely divorced from the creative process. But of course, you don't quite mean it literally, but I, I have a sense of what you mean in terms of the crafting of the story. Uh-huh. But when you set out, you may set out to write a novel that explores, let's say, for example, colorism. Mm-hmm. But by the time the final manuscript goes for publication, it ends up being a far more complex novel. This novel Mm. deals with so many themes, and we'll read from the novel in a second. It deals with what it means to be a foreign national, Mm -hmm. um, which is not about color per se, although color can come into it. Mm -hmm. It deals with what it means to serendipitously find yourself connecting with people that you didn't know you lived in the same city with previously, and now suddenly your lives intersect in ways you could not have anticipated. And then it deals with aesthetic issues, um, such as music and our relationship with it and classical music in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me through how interesting and, and how rewarding it is as a writer when you set out having an impulse either in relation to a character or a story or an issue 
mm-hmm. and yet by the end of the final product, if it all goes well, and it did for you in this novel, mm-hmm. then you have a far more irreducibly complex product. Okay. And I think I must admit that, um, that the book you have in front of you is actually the third writing because I started twice and I wasn't happy with them, with the, with the previous manuscripts, so I threw them away and I did start again. So just to go back to your, to your first point around how it feels and the urge one has to write, and I think for me when I write and when it's going well, it feels very much like it feels very much like I am taking dictation. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as though I, there are people around me who are telling me what happened and what they did. Um, so that is quite. It's actually quite a pleasurable thing. And uh, so it takes me about a year and a half to write a novel. So so it's a very solitary experience. And I find in that I discover a lot about myself. So some of the things I put in the book are things that happened to me maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And they sort of festered in my mind and I, and I find the opportunity now sure. to uh, speak about them. So mom and dad, teacher and precious, we're introduced to them very early on. Teacher comes from Ghana, mm-hmm. finds himself teaching maths in Ntata at a school there. And uh, precious is, is a local. They have a really interesting relationship. There's lots of tension. Um, Mm -hmm. That's something you enjoy exploring. You've done so in previous relationship as well. You seem to have a morbid fascination with uh, marriages that um, have all sorts of hidden shadows, which is the majority, as you've said in previous interviews. That's just how life goes, right? It's called life, full stop, and part of the human condition. And then you have Karaba, who didn't ask to be born, but who was born into this interesting context where Mm -hmm. grandma and granddad on either side of the spectrum, looks at her very funny and tries to figure out who is this child that doesn't quite look like the average crosser girl in her class. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what the story is really about, it's actually about the love between a daughter and her father. And I really want to, to explore that and, and see what happens when that love goes through a severe test. Um, so that was really the theme that ran through the book. And it's almost incidental that uh, she is light-skinned because she cleaves to that love she has for her father. So for Karhabu, her father is almost a mini-god. And he's a man who can do no wrong. One of the difficulties is that Precious tries to figure out why are things not okay mm. at home, including in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She then goes to Ikriha, to Jabu. Uh-huh. And Karabo is dragged along. And I'm going to read a little bit from the book for you because I think it goes to the nub of exactly what Echo was just talking about in terms of this fascinating relationship between teacher and Karabo, but what it does to the family dynamic. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting. I wouldn't accuse you of using shock tactics in your novels because I think you do it so subtly, but it raises some questions, particularly the end of this consultation mm-hmm. with Ikriha that um, is wonderfully awkward. So instead of describing, let us show for you a little bit. The Jabu is, the, is Ikriha, Precious is mom. Precious felt a little cheated that Jabu hadn't bothered to change out his overalls. The last time she'd seen him, he'd been wearing a grass skirt with leather amulets tied around his biceps. At least he could have messed up his hair a little. You have come. His voice was deep and resonant, 
just how Iqqiqa's voice should be. Precious smiled. Perhaps she'd get her money's worth after all. What brings you here, my daughter? She wished Jabu couldn't call her that. He'd been two classes behind her at school. She shut her eyes and tried to focus on the fact that he was Iqqiqa now, at least when he wasn't cutting grass for the municipality. You know why I'm here. It is my husband. She thought his eyes glimmered. But it was difficult to tell in the half-light. The teacher. Yes, teacher. My husband. Jabu bent his head and stirred the beads with a dry twig. Then he dipped his hand into the cup of water, without warning, flicked his fingers at Precious. She recoiled and cried out in alarm, feeling strangely humiliated, as if he had spat at her, but she did not dare wipe her face. Does he know you? What do you mean, Jabu? He's my husband, of course he knows me. Jabu slipped his hand between his legs and cupped his crotch. My daughter, I asked whether your teacher knows you. Precious's face burned with shame at the turn Jabu's questions had taken. No, Jabu, she said quietly, not for several months. And then it goes on, and now obviously they're trying to figure out, is there a woman that explains this? And then, during this time, Precious obviously finds herself thinking aloud, and then the story unfolds as following. What woman? The teacher have a girlfriend? Precious ran through the women she'd seen around teacher, scoring them against their likelihood of mischief. She didn't trust Dorothy Mpetla. The bitch read the notices in church and spoke, is it closer, like an Englishwoman, clicking her tongue in all the wrong places. But it was common knowledge that Dorothy only had eyes for the Nigerian pastor, so Precious struck her off the list. But what about Yunus Matabela, the new school principal? Teacher spoke of her often, and with admiration, Yunus was married. Not that it mattered these days. If not Yunus or Dorothy, could it be that vendor girl in grade 12, the one whose parents paid teacher to give her extra math lessons after school? She was tall and sullen with a body that spoke more than she did, the sort of body a man liked. Precious was still trying to remember her name when Jabu's voice rolled through the gloom. She is here. Confused, Precious glanced quickly behind her. You mean Karabo? But she's not a woman, she's my daughter. I have answered your question, Jabu said firmly. The Literature Corner I mean, it's obviously a shock to Precious's entire being when Jabu goes on to say a little bit later, when Precious obviously protests and says, but Karabu's a child. Mm-hmm. And then Jabu says, there are no children in this, this house. Mm-hmm. That relationship between daughter and dad, there's, there's subtext there that is horrifically uncomfortable, isn't there? Sure, there is. And I think I, I skirt quite close to the age. Um, and I sort of suggest that there's, there's something unbecoming which is happening between the two. Uh, but then he needs to remember that uh, she really, really, really loves her father. And uh, he is like the most important person in the world. Absolutely. Everyone, we're like, why did you go to the ads? We wanted you to keep on reading. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. You want a copy of the book? First person to call in, provide it to you in Joburg, and you can come and fetch it. We're going give to a, give away free copy. It's worth It's worth it. O double one double eight three zero seven zero two. You don't even have to come on air. First person to call my producers, provided you're willing to come to Joburg, to to our studio, you can get a free copy of the book.
and uh, they will tell me who the winner is. 011-883-0702. I love London. My boyfriend, not so much. If I wasn't living in Joburg, I, I, would, I think I would want to live in London. Uh-huh. I, I just love that place, man. And I, and I love the fact that you particularly flirt with the areas that I like. Okay. And I know that you, in your previous novel, explored homosexuality, including like a good anthropologist hanging out with some of my friends at their book club as part of your research. Right. London is a lovely city within which to place the characters mm-hmm. for the next part of the book. Mm-hmm. Talk me through that choice and, um, and give the listeners a little bit of a sense of, of how the story moves on. Okay. And I think that, I think that the, the choice actually came about be, because I lived in London for five years. So I went across to London when I was 16 for sixth form, and then I stayed for university. And as I said previously, I think that there were things about my time in London that I've never really addressed. Like, for example, when I write, and I don't think this is a giveaway, so when I write about um, the young man who is looking at luxurious cars in the West End of London, simply because he's never seen so many cars parked end-to-end before, so he's stooping to peer in into the cars one by one, and then suddenly he's thrown into the back of a police van. That was me. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what happened to Karaba was that she goes to London to study. So, so this was just as I did. And she starts to interact with the Londoners, and that is how she meets up with the Summerscales family. Absolutely. Thank you, Mariva. What a... Roshana? Hi, you see this? How are you? Hey, you are the lucky winner. <laughs> Thank you so much. Nicely <laughs> done. <laughs> <laughs> is this your first time calling in? Yes, it is. Congratulations both on the book and now being one of those weird outliers who call into radio stations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Eusebius. Nice. Enjoy it. You'll, you'll be able to come and fetch it. Yes, I will. Thank you. Fantastic. There's so many people calling in, man. I think you work in finance, man. You, 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 you can, between us, I'm sure we can sponsor another book, Mas. Second book. We'll, we'll give one a, a, a second one away. From okay. Zaddy Eusebius. Okay, I'll pay for it. I won't let Echo pay it. Okay. 011-883-0702. Give us a call and um, we'll we'll give away... A, a second, um, a second book. I want to read a little bit from one of the other characters. Is of course Andre, and um, Andre arrives himself in London, eventually to become a music teacher. If you want to know who Andre is, you're gonna to have to read the book. But there's a little bit of an interaction between him and his first landlady. She's not significant. I just love the writing around this and some of the stereotyping of South Africans that happened um, in this little paragraph. So I want to read around uh, page 105, 106. So Andre Pochiter is very important, and the relationship between him and the encounter with Karabo goes on to be critically important, particularly in the London part of this story. But as, as he begins his journey there, it's an interesting interaction between him and this uh, middle-aged woman that is uh, the first uh, landlady that he encounters. And it goes something like this. And I want to give you a sense of how Echo writes. Different characters, different accents and that kind of thing. Different timber. She was middle-aged and spoke with a slight but distinctly Irish accent. A small silver crucifix lay smothered between speckled pink breasts. She wore a green satin tracksuit top 
with a trail of bright sequins on the back that spelled out the name McGregor. Andre counted the money out into her hand. She folded the notes and tucked them quietly into her pocket. Mind you, the radio makes a hell of a record on Saturday nights. You can see I can't do an Irish accent. Sorry, guys. It's my husband's business, and I can't very well ask him to switch it off, can I? She glowered at Andre with the boxer's belligerence until he murmured a few words of assent. Of course not. I quite understand. She let out a sigh of relief. You look like a quiet lad. Where did you say you were from again? South Africa. Oh, you're the good lot then. Andre nodded slowly. He wasn't sure what she meant. We get lots of South Africans coming through here. Quibus moved out just the other week. Got a job in the city, bless him. He said South Africans gone to the dogs since they put the darkies in charge. Now you won't find a racist bone in my body, love. But that's what Quibus said, and he would know. The radio spat out another garbled burst of static. I suppose it depends on one's perspective, Andre replied. You don't mind if I call you Potter, do you? Andrew Potter. Pot Geeta's a bit difficult for me, and I like the sound of Andrew. Andre was too tired to protest. So I've got a question here about writing craft. Mm. Obviously, this landlady is insignificant. She's just in the background like you would a London bus if we were to make a film version of Yellowbone. We'd have to have all the tapestry of London yeah. in the background. Yeah. How do you decide which minor characters and moments to include as a writer? And which ones do you leave on the editing table? It's actually, it's actually strange you chose her because even though she's a minor character, I actually think of her a lot. So whenever I go back to read a piece of the book, I often read the exact, the exact piece that you wrote. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, there were several... The, well, there were other characters I left out. For example, in the previous version, Mrs. Summerscales had a much younger lover, but he doesn't appear in the in the final version of the book. And I think it comes down to: do they really add to the story? Um, so I ask myself: could I remove them and not lose the essence of the story? Hmm. And I don't think with the Irish landlady, I don't think I could. Hmm. Mm, absolutely. Lindiwe, good morning. Hi, Judith. You are the second book winner. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I tried the first time around the said so really well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fabulous. We've got one right here from the author. And you know what? Both to you and the previous one. I'm going to ask the author to autograph it right here while we are actually oh, busy speaking. So you're going to get, you, you, both of you will get autographed versions. And um, that is um, courtesy of Echo Duca. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you so much. I'm going to do one final bit of reading while Echo uh, autographs that, but I want him to listen because I'm going to ask him a question about the final excerpt. Beyond this, we're not giving you any further taste. Read the book, buy it. It's fresh. It's available nationwide. I saw lots of copies at Exclusive Books in Hyde Park last night when I went for Adam Abib's launch. Once you've read it, even in his absence, we'll talk about the book more fully, the other themes in about three or four months' time, okay? So we're introducing you to the book, then we'll come back. The next time I'm having him on, I will have him on when I've reread his other novels, and then we can talk about his entire output as a novelist because he really is one of the one of the continents, I think, most interesting novelists. So obviously at some point, Karabo meets Mr. Potgieter through her friend Nigel. Nigel is a student, and um, there's an interesting moment where... 
His mom subjects her to a little bit of a recital of the student, um, Nigel. And this is how it goes as they are, as they are busy listening to the music being played. Whenever you're ready, Nigel, his mother said. Her tone was rather sharp and implied he should be ready by now. Nigel gave a, a slight nod and took up his position behind the music stand. He stood stock still for a moment and then, with a slight tremor, roused himself and began to play. Nigel's head snapped to attention and he squeezed his eyes shut as he launched himself into the music. Carabo noticed how Andre mimicked Nigel's actions, but with much less desperation. The two of them were communing through the music and she couldn't help but feel left out, for Nigel played beautifully at first. He'd chosen Spring by Vivaldi and got through the first part quite easily. The Literature Corner Last but not least, and I think this is one of the reasons why I like this novel so much, I feel so guilty. I you know, finally bought a bloody classical piano. I used to play in high school. And then, okay. like most people who did things in childhood, you spend the rest of your life not doing it again, but telling yeah. everyone, oh, I used to play. I could play grade eight, even though you're now probably grade four at best. Yeah. <laughs> but this morning I was tempted to start playing my scales again because I just love how classical music mm-hmm. makes an appearance aesthetically in this novel. Just speak me into that and how, whether you are into, into instruments yourself or as a very good novelist, you also try to understand this part of the story in one of these themes. There's something about our relationship with, with classical music that I think comes out very beautifully, even as we deal mm. with othering, with deceit, with complicated love affairs, with Mutata, yeah. with Ghana. This is one of the themes which on its own we can discuss for an hour. Yeah, sure. Thank you for that. So where the music came in, um, so I had this urge to write about violins. And I, and I honestly don't know where it came from. So I found myself seeking out a violinist. So I found a gentleman in Johannesburg, Sir Chucha, and I spoke with a violin maker as well, Albert Zbeka. So the two gentlemen really helped me to understand the mystery and the wonder of this amazing instrument. And I found that I really enjoyed the classical music as well. So I listen to a lot more classical music now, <laughs> and I think it's because of the book. Mm. And I think it, it, it's almost a book that is set to music, but not in the conventional way. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Which is why I kept thinking a lot about Ntikeng Moshlele's work mm-hmm. in that respect, because mm-hmm. the way his relationship with music is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, an incredibly intuitive understanding mm-hmm. of the aesthetic properties of good music, which infused mm-hmm. each one of his novels that he's written so far. Mm-hmm. Echo, time flies when you're having fun. Congratulations on this excellent new novel of yours. Thank you so much. And I can see from the Twitter feed you're going to get a whole bunch of sales. And thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.